really refreshing to be able to really let you sing from your heart. I appreciate that very much. We're a little more subdued in Pennsylvania. Uh, that's probably another word for conservative, I suppose. Uh, or old-fashioned, or... Uh, I'm not sure what the other word is. Uh, you can figure it out yourself, all right? I, uh, I enjoyed the start very much. There's some old friends here, obviously, from bygone days, faculty, some still around after all these years. I'll tell you something about them here in a second to give you some inside information. How does that sound? First, uh, Steve, thank you for the introduction and the privilege of being back here very much. Uh, I have two special friends with me. Uh, my oldest son, who was born here, spent his first year of his life here. In fact, uh, when he came home, the first day on, uh, home, we didn't take him to our house. I took him to the old slab court. Uh, which was the old basketball court up on the hillside that uh, since has been torn apart for buildings, but uh, that's the first place we took him as a six-day-old boy coming home from the hospital. And uh, he's here today. He's up from Orange County. Uh, uh, my wife's cousin uh, by marriage and one of my dear friends from Canoga Park is here, part of my family as well, uh, as two guests. And if you see two people you haven't seen before sitting up here in the front, uh, uh, it's my son, Steve, and uh, our cousin, Paul. So uh, make them feel at home, if you would. Uh, Steve is single, looking for a wife. Uh, when, uh, yay. When Steve announced, uh, Steve Dixon announced that uh, I'd be up front, uh, my son said, you mean up on the platform? He got excited thinking the girls would have a chance to see him, you know, firsthand, but uh, you'll just have to catch him afterwards. He has just ventured into a new ministry down in Costa Mesa. He might be praying for him. His heartbeat is for the street people, the homeless, the down-and-outers, and, -outers, and uh, there are a lot of them that run the streets of Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, live on the beach, etc. down there. And his burden is to reach those people. And he started by just going downtown, picking them up one at a time, taking them out to eat. And now that burden has grown a ministry now called For Those in Need. He's now incorporated. The Lord's starting to bless that ministry. Uh, they've actually had two yachts given to him lately, uh, recently there at Newport Beach, to either use for collateral or whatever they want to help uh, their outreach ministry. So uh, he's got a heartbeat for those people, and I appreciate that. I don't know how well you know Professor Ed Gruss. Uh, he's been here a long time. Yeah. He was both my teacher and then later, as I became part of the faculty on a limited basis, my colleague. I just spotted somebody else over here, Mike Starr. Can't believe it. Part of the original basketball program we had here. He was our, our fast break leader. Did the full court in about 15 or 20 seconds. Uh, his first home was right here, New Hall 2. My gracious. I'll see some more folks. I saw Jan a while ago. Used to be Jan L. Gina, part of the original group here. I haven't seen Doc Duncan yet this morning, but I'm sure he's around someplace. But let me tell you about uh, Prof. Gruss just for a second, all right? So you need to know some inside information. 
He taught all kind of courses when I was here. He taught uh, history. He taught about the cults. He taught, he taught Bible. He taught theology. He was in a lot of different areas. And uh, at one time, he even wanted to go into the sciences. And he probably has never told you the story, but he went down to UCLA and started to take a zoology major down there so that he could teach that back here on this campus. And uh, unfortunately, because the heavy load he had here, he got way behind in his assignments. And in fact, he got down to the last week of school. It appeared that he was going to flunk the course. He went to the prof and said, I can't do that. I'm a teacher. The word will get back to students at LABC, as we were called back in those days. I'll have no respect. I, I can't flunk this, this class. And the prof said, well, uh, Mr. Gress, my recommendation is that you do exceedingly well in the final. It's going to count seven, for 75% of the grade. And if you do well, you can pull this D minus, 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 minus up quite a bit. And so, according to his wife, Jerry, he came home and started studying on a Friday noon. And he did not go to bed the entire weekend. In fact, he's probably in trouble because he missed church on Sunday. He studied straight through from Friday afternoon until Monday, 10 a.m., without stopping. He memorized things he had never thought he could memorize. And he had a textbook practically memorized and all the notes he could collect. And he went into that huge UCLA auditorium where they had the class, and it was one of those big ones with about 750 students. And he walked down the center aisle with his blue book in his hand, ready to bring up his grade, sat down and looked up on the, the stage like they had where the prof stood, and he looked up and all he saw was 10 covered cages. And soon the prof said, uh, students, I'm going to give you a little different final exam than I have in the past. You'll notice ten cages up here. In the cages are birds. I'm going to lift just slightly the cover around each cage so you can see the legs of each bird. And as you look at the legs, I want you to tell me everything you know about those birds. Their migratory habits, any anatomical information you can give me, uh, something on their species, background information, and I want you to fill your blue books with that information. Well, Mr. Gruss went nuts. I mean, he had studied all this other stuff, and here he's going to get this kind of exam. And it just, you could just, you know, you could feel the heat coming from his body, and finally he just took his blue book and he just wadded it up and just tore it in pieces and threw it down on the floor, grumbling and complaining, and of course everybody's starting to look at him, and the prof's looking down at him. And he stepped out in that middle aisle and started to walk out of that place. Said, that's it, I've had it. And the prof said, hey, you, son, stop. Whoa, what's your name? Who are you anyway? Stop. And Prof Gruss got about halfway up the aisle, turned around to Prof, lifted up his pant legs and said, you tell me, Prof, you're the leg specialist. <laughs> he passed that course. I knew you'd appreciate that inside information. <laughs> well, needless to say, I won't verify if that's accurate or not.
I'll tell you, students, it's a joy to be back on the campus again. God has done a marvelous thing. It's nice to be home. I've really struggled with this morning, by the way, and you need to know the truth. Uh, I've, I've worked for some time to hone up a message that I shared uh, on another occasion with our student body back east thinking that might be encouraging to you, and yet I struggle because I, I don't want to do something in the flesh today, and the temptation is to come home and, and let everybody know that you finally grew up and you actually can preach a little bit, and I don't want to do that today, and yet I, I want to give you what God has for us for our benefit today, and I, I trust that from my heart this will be from Him, and that it will be profitable and meaningful to us as we, as we look at a passage together. I, I really have struggled. In fact, at breakfast this morning, I, I wasn't sure if I should just maybe share a word of testimony how God has worked in my life since I left here way back in 63, or 64, rather. Let me just uh, maybe do this this morning, and that is to try and make as practical, as helpful as possible, an Old Testament passage to you. Uh, I suspect that most of you brought your Bibles. If you have your Bible, let's turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 3. You understand the, the background for Ezra, so I don't have to give you all the details. It's following the 70 years of captivity. Ezra falls into what's called the post-exilic period, the period after the exile. Seventy years they've lived in a foreign country. Seventy years without their temple. Seventy years without the focal point of their worship. Seventy years, a different language, a different culture. By now, they've had families. The families have already started to learn the culture of the Babylonians, and now it's time for the Persians to take control. And a king by the name of Cyrus conquers the, the Babylonians, and as a Persian king has a little different philosophy than the Babylonians. His idea was to let displaced people return to their homelands and reestablish even their religion because he felt that a happy subject would, uh, would be a loyal subject. And thus people were returning to their native homelands out of what was called Babylon or the Persian area. And 50,000 people, or thereabouts, under the leadership of Zerubbabel left, returned to Jerusalem. And if we look at the book of Ezra within a context, the, the thing we learn is the primary function of Zerubbabel as he led them back was to start a reconstruction, a rebuilding of the temple. Later, Nehemiah will return and start to rebuild the walls. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but isn't just like God? You and I, maybe not you, but I, probably would have started with the walls, thinking there are hostile people out there, and if we're going to do the inside work, let's get the walls up so we have some protection. And once we get our protection, then we can go to work uh, on the inside. Of course, I probably would have fouled up Joseph's life as well. I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like today to stand 
and watch a 17-year-old boy, an upright, righteous 17-year-old boy, be mistreated by his older brothers and be sold into captivity into a foreign land. I would have intervened right on the spot and said, that's it, folks. Hey, what'd you pay for him? I'll double it. I'll buy him back. There's no way we're going to send him down into Egypt. And after he got down there and Potiphar's wife falsely accused him, I would intervene. I'd become the best defense attorney our world's ever known. No way you can send an innocent young man to prison for something he didn't do. Righteousness should not be punished. And man, I'd have found some way to intervene. And then when the cupbearer forgot him, I'd have been all over that cupbearer saying, you ingrate, get the word to Pharaoh now. Let's get him out of here. And I think you would have done the same thing. There are times that God's leadership doesn't make a lot of sense, humanly speaking, right? I mean, we would not do it that way. I mean, what would you do if you were one of uh, the two men sent to spy out Jericho as they were about to begin the conquest of the promised land, the land of Canaan? Would you have sent those two men to the home of Rahab the harlot? Can you imagine them explaining that to their wives? Where were you last night, hon? On a mission? Sure. Where? Into Jericho. Mm, where did where, you spend the night? At a place there. Well, uh, who's home where? Oh, just a home there. Don't get too, you know, you don't need to know. Now look me in the eye and tell me the truth. We've always been honest with each other, right? Where did you stay last night? Well, Rahab the harlot's house. No. Can you imagine? There are a lot of things and what God is doing in our lives, guys and gals, that don't make a lot of sense. Humanly speaking, they don't make sense. About two weeks ago, we asked a young man that's one of our sharpest students from our college to uh, withdraw from school. His bill, his school bill was so enormous, we let him come back to see if the money was going to come in. It didn't come in. We gave him a couple more days, and money didn't come in, and a couple more days, and didn't come in. And finally, the school had to say, look, uh, I mean, those $16,000 is just out of sight, man. You're going to have to do something about this. And he couldn't. His folks couldn't sell their property. Had they sold it, he'd had his bill paid. And I got so upset, I walked out of a meeting and said, let's don't send him home yet. The folks have the money. They guarantee it. I'd be terrible working in a business office, obviously. Accounts receivable about $4 million. And... I said, we can't do that to him. They can sell their property tomorrow. I came back and apologized to my colleagues for leaving in a huff. and It really had me upset. And all that weekend I was upset. And then God just hit me over the head with Joseph, my illustration I gave a second ago. And I want you to know that last weekend I was down in the southern part of New Jersey ministering. And as I was down there... Who shows up but this young man with a group of young people from the church where he was working. He said, Coach, got some great news. Boy, I've got a great job. I get a chance to work with these young people. I'm clearing six bucks an hour. I'm able to save it, start putting it towards my school bill. It's going to work out great. This is perfect. God knew what he was doing. I said, Boy, Brian, I'm so glad to hear that. And I thought, man, I'd, I'd have messed his life up. I'd, just, I'd have made him stay there and get in debt some more. Each of you 
you face things every day that where God has to somehow talk to our hearts and make the things clearer to us than seem logical at the moment, right? And I hope when we talk about Ezra this morning, the book of Ezra, that these things will make sense to you and you'll understand how significant these are in God's plan. There are three relevant requirements given to us in Ezra chapter 3. And within the framework of these three very relevant requirements are five very practical principles. And be, I'll be very brief with these to give them to you. Let me give you, first of all, what I think are the three relevant requirements. Verses 1 through 6, the requirement is worship, just like we've already had today. Worship before work. Worship before work. The second of those requirements starts in verse 7, concludes in verse 9, and there that requirement is wisdom. Wisdom before work. And the final is verses 10 through 13, and the requirement is worship because of the work. Worship because of the work. And weaved in between and amongst these three requirements are five principles. And I'll show you where they fall as we go through the passage together. Chapter 3, verse 6. Let me give you just a capstone verse here to help us. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord... But catch the next expression. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. And if you look at the verses before that, which we'll do quickly, all that went before talks about their worship. And all that happened before any of the foundation work was begun. It's worship before work. Do you see that? Before they lay a stone of the foundation, they've already established something first, worship. And in that, that uh, requirement of worship before work, we get the first of our, of our principles. And that very first principle is a principle of priorities. So if you've got an outline, and Roman number one is worship before work, then capital A is the principle of priorities. In New Testament, it was Mary of Bethany. You remember her? You know how she was characterized? Three times in the New Testament, she's the lady at the feet of the Lord Jesus, right? Three different scenes, and she's all at his, every time at his feet. In Luke chapter 10, in her home, Martha is serving, and Mary is at the feet of the Lord Jesus being taught, being instructed. And the Lord Jesus says, when, Mary gets, or when Martha gets upset, don't be upset, don't be anxious about this. She has chosen the better part. The thing is going to last. This time with me and being taught of me. In the 11th chapter of John, she's at his feet for comfort because of what's happened to her brother Lazarus who has died. And in chapter 12, she's at his feet in adoration and worship where she took that spikenard very costly. We're told it was worth 300 days of labor for common labor. 
and poured it out on the feet of the Savior and there wiped uh, uh, his feet with her hair and in love and adoration, in essence, said, Lord, this is the most precious thing I possess. I'm breaking it. I'm spilling it out on you. And, and I'm letting you know before all these men in this room that I love you. You're first in my life. The principle of priorities. Here in Ezra chapter 3, the principle was that uh, they started with worship before they did anything else. Uh, I need to take you through this quickly. The people that are involved in chapter 3 are obviously important characters, but what they did is really what's significant. Verse 2, Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jozdak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offering thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon the people because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom of the duty of every day that every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings. And in essence what happened was, the first day of the seventh month the trumpet blew very first day. Started the offering process. The tenth day of that month was the Day of Atonement. Starting on the fifteenth day for one week, started the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. And along with that were daily burnt offerings, every morning and every after mid-afternoon offerings. You see, what they really show us by way of priority, and, and, and I hope you catch this, is the first and highest endeavor that they had was to reestablish worship. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat? All that was before them in, in times past? And now they've been without it. And there they are in a pagan land. And you know that their worship has been hindered. And now after 70 years, the first thing they're going to do is reestablish their worship. In fact, the temple actually has been down for 50 years. If they'd been back, they couldn't have worshipped there. And now they're going to start with their proper priorities. Worship first. And the first project is to rebuild the altar. Verse 4 tells us something important. It says that they were afraid of the people on the outside, the countries round about them. There was fear there because of them. And yet, even with the fear of the people on the outside, they started with the altar. They did not start with walls. They still started with the, with the, the place of worship. In 1991 language, here's what they said. Let's take care of the inner man and make sure the inner man's provision is taken care of before we protect the outer man. Folks, that's a great lesson for today for all of us. Our preoccupation is with the external. 
if there's a lesson out of this passage, it's, it's go to work on the internal. Give God a priority to work on our internal before we just start working about all the external things around us. That's a great lesson. Each of us, every morning, when we get up and look in that mirror, we either start today saying, boy, I'm glad I'm who I am. I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm happy I'm alive. I rejoice in today's options. Or we get up and mumble and grumble through it. And the difference really is what's inside of us. If I get up and say, Lord, today's yours. I don't have tomorrow. I only have today. Today I want to develop all the qualities of the inner man. I want to be godly internally. I don't care just how I look externally. And I don't, I don't want to just have good relationships with people. I want to have a good relationship with you. My life with you is more important than what counts on the outside with other people. You know, I've discovered with our students in Pennsylvania, they're subject to peer pressure. So when their roommates is telling dirty stories or watching the wrong stuff or using inappropriate, whatever it is, instead of being godly and wanting to please God at that moment internally, it's easier to go along with the crowd in the dorm and just be like them. So after a while, the common denominator is who's the most ungodly? And you all conform then to the most ungodly person around you. I'm not asking you to be some kind of a prude or some kind of false piety. But the lesson here, gang, is we have a responsibility to God in worship and loyalty to Him before we have a responsibility to external people around us. Does that make sense? It's Him first. That's our priority. Not the pleasing of men, but the pleasing of Him. The second of those requirements that worship because of the work has a principle to it, two principles actually. Uh, wisdom before work. Second principle, wisdom before work. The principle there is the principle of preparation. The New Testament builder was said, was told, count the cost before you start to build. Well, here, our Old Testament builder, in the time of Ezra, the time of Zerubbabel, was asked, asked to properly prepare and plan. Sit down and think it through. And you know what happened? They spent seven months Begin there with verse 7. You get some idea of what took place. They spent seven months in the planning and preparation process. It was a threefold preparation. You can see that through verse 7, 8, and 9 primarily. First, they had to secure the building specialist. You notice who they secured? Verse 7. Masons and carpenters. People that were specialists that could get the job done. Secondly, they had to secure the building supplies and were told that they had to go down and get from Tyre the, the cedar and trees and so forth. All the stuff that was going to take in the rebuilding process. Then they had to secure the building supervisors. And you'll find that there's uh, three groups of Levites, of, of people uh, mentioned here. There's, uh, they're tied to three different men. Jeshua, uh, Cadmiel, and Hinnadad, three different people. And they're all supervisors taking the leadership, priestly men, special responsibilities. And so the principle that we have is one of preparation. Before you start to undertake something, you start to think it through. How do I do this right? If I'm going to get involved in building in a life, 
If God has me involved in building lives today, which is what we're supposed to be doing, then I need to think about what it, what it means to build a life. Put some time and preparation into, into it. Your, your, your time here is well spent. I wish I could tell you all the things that happened to me in my, my four years plus here. The people that impacted my life. But I'll be thankful for all of my life. Men, women who poured their lives out for me. I'm thankful. This school has meant so much to me in my life preparation my opportunities. And right now, part of your preparation process right now is learning how to build into people's lives. And can I just give you just one word of encouragement? Don't see building into people's lives as a little thing. I can't think of a larger thing on planet Earth today than to get involved in the building process of somebody else's life. God has privileged us to be co-laborers with Him and one of the privileges we have is to build in a life of another. And all this preparation is not wasted time. I had a prophet by the name of Dr. Hotchkiss, the father of John Hotchkiss, who taught me so many things I could not enumerate them if I started listening today and spent the rest of my days. Real men, I guess, don't eat quiche today, but in my day, real men did not take literature and poetry. But he taught those things, and even though I hated literature and poetry as a high schooler and thought they were for sissies and non-athletes, I appreciate him so much that I ended up taking Victorian poetry, English literature, English novel, unbelievable things, and loved it and learned. Because every time he came to class, there was something more for my life that helped me to have a ministry in somebody else's life. Because he wanted to be fresh every time he came to class. He would study, even though he taught something, whether it was at the University of Pennsylvania or Cornell University or someplace before he came to here. He would stay up till late, re-studying as if he had never taught it before, so he'd be fresh the next day. And because he's getting up in his years, his ankles would swell. And that dear man would come to class the next day with ankles swollen that big all around his shoes. And I'd sit there and look at his ankles, and all I could think of was how much he must love me to want to pour his life out with fresh material like that. Because he had to stand to study, to stay awake late at night. As he stood, the ankles would swell. Folks, I'm telling you, I learned that I couldn't sacrifice too much for my students then later on if he could do that for me. He built in my lives in ways he didn't know he was building. And you've got people doing that for you today too, don't you? Amen? Amen, you do. Be grateful. The third of the principles is found in this same section. It's the principle of precedent, and I'll just make it very brief. If you looked at 1 Kings chapter 5, 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 2, 2 Chronicles 3, 2 Chronicles 5, you would discover that in Solomon's temple there were certain patterns laid down. And now Zerubbabel and the rest of the leadership are going back and trying to follow as closely as they can the patterns that were established in Solomon's original temple. It's called the principle of precedent. Just because it happened before doesn't mean it's old-fashioned out of date today. 
Not everything we do today is the best. There are some things we did a few years ago that are still all right. There's still value and precedent. You don't throw all the old things out. If you go back to Exodus chapter 38, Numbers 1 and Numbers 3, you'll get something to the idea of the, of the tabernacle. And some of the, the things were carried on down again. Some of the patterns were given. You see, God gives us a divine blueprint for building buildings even. And God still has the best blueprint, especially if we're going to go into building of lives. If I'm going to get involved in a life, you know it and I know it. Great psychology books on the land today all over the place. But the best blueprint for working lives is right here. Amen? Are you with me on this? Do you believe that? The best answers for life are still in here. Best blueprint. Finally, worship because of the work as we close our time together. And there's two final praise, two final uh, principles here. The principle of praise, verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites are the sons of, of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. Uh, these are uh, uh, outlawed instruments today in most churches, most schools probably, trumpets and cymbals and drums and electric organs and guitars, but uh, I'm glad you still have some of the instruments that God gave us originally. Uh, sometime, I don't know exactly when, probably around the turn of this century, we got not to Book of Mormon, but a new, a new set of laws that God passed on down to us that talked about music in the church. Thou shall have an organ only. Lightly played daintily by petite ladies. <laughs> in perfect time, not jazzed up, please. And if you do it sanctimoniously, you might add a piano as well. I've always tried to figure out what our poor missionaries try to do when they head down to the jungles of Brazil. Come on, bring that organ along. That's it. Bring that baby. That's God's instrument for our day. You know. It's a shock to the folks that I think a guitar goes in sometimes and discover that's probably the number one instrument down there. I'm poking fun at myself today, folks, so just uh, hang with me on this. I come out of that kind of a conservative background. Uh, I went to LABC back in the days when we, we wouldn't even sing in chapel lest we get off key, you know. <clears throat> I don't think that was the reason people didn't sing, however. Verse 11, and they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because He is good. He is good. For His mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted and with a great shout and, with, and when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house was laid. You see, what happened was now after worship was right and after wisdom was right and they approached it the way you're supposed to, now they could get the project underway and God honored the project and they looked at what they had done and it was good. And God was good and they rejoiced. That's the principle of praise. There ought to be praise in our lives. Christianity is not meant to cause us to be whipped, 
deadbeat people, you know, running around like we're on our last leg. We have life. We have vitality. We have hope. I put a little note here, and I'll read it so I don't tell you the wrong way what I want to say. Our praise is an outer manifestation of our inner satisfaction, of our inner fulfillment, of our inner reverence, of our inner love and joy for the Lord. That's what our praise is. And then finally, there's a final principle. It's called the principle of performance. Verse 12 says that there was a struggle. Some of the priests and the older folks that saw the old temple thought this one didn't measure up, so they were kind of weeping over it. Everybody else was rejoicing. But right in the middle of that, it at least tells us that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. Actually, it was done. Even though some didn't think it was large enough, others rejoiced, but at least it was a finished fact, accomplished. The performance was there. It was completed, concluded. And you see, performance of an assignment is really doing God's will. It's actively obeying what he asks us to do. And it allows us to visually see what we are collaborating or co-laboring with him on. Shows what we can do when God allows us to participate with him what he can do through us. There's a verse, I'll read it to you in conclusion. John chapter 3, verse 29. John the Baptist speaking says this, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. John the Baptist tells us something about the performance of a function. John said, it's not, being the, it's not being the groom that's exciting. He said, I want to be the very best, best man I can be. I don't have to be the groom. I don't have to be the company president. I don't have to be the CEO. I don't have to be the head of the class. I just have to be the best me God wants me to be. He said, it's not the preeminence of the position. It's the performance of the assignment that brings joy. And the principle of performance means when your worship is right and your wisdom is right and now you go to work, it's going to turn out right for God and you're going to have joy in doing something substantial for Him. You're the potential of life-touching that is unfathomable by any of us. And what God wants to say to you today is, get your worship right. Get all your priorities in line. Put me first. Give me a chance to work in your life. Place me first, not the exterior things. Become a wise person who becomes a good learner, who receives good preparation in the process, and your work will be right. And you'll rejoice because of it. Now, did you know Ezra 3 said that? That's what Ezra 3 tells us. Isn't that a great little chapter? Great little chapter. Right up to date, 1991. 
I, I just want to tell you folks, if I could do anything on planet Earth I wanted to do, the only thing I really want to do is God's will because I'm afraid of anything else. I don't know what the best thing in life is for me except His will. I just know that. I don't know if He wants me back in coaching someday. I don't know if He wants me to be a custodian someplace. It's a high lofty position with responsibility that I might not be able to handle. Who knows? All I know is I want His will for my life. And while I do His will, I want to be His man who honors Him and not just men. That I might be a wise person in the way I do His work. And I hope my life is a life message of worship, of praise to Him. You too? Father, thank you.